This is An American Workplace, a podcast dedicated to rewatching and discussing NBC's beloved mockumentary series, The Office. My name is Chad Hopkins, and joining me as always is my good friend and co-host, Katie White. Katie, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. Nothing's on fire. My life is normal. <laughs> Everything is fine. <laughs> good to hear. How are you? That, that didn't sound like you were stressed or lying? worried about things. Or no. <laughs> I'm not lying. I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing okay. I, I have a beer tonight. That's really weird. I normally oh. have coffee. But it's going to be I, a fun podcast. Yeah. Ready, well, guys. I mean, I got to combat some of the, the heavy emotion and emoting <laughs> that's going to be coming at some point. No kidding. Anyways, <laughs> uh, let's <laughs> go ahead and do our introductions because I have a feeling this is going to be another lengthy episode, which I, I hope you guys like the lengthy episodes. I mean, we like talking about The Office and these are just like in-depth episodes. We have to talk yeah. about a lot of things. And this is our last twofer from yeah, here on out. That's They're going to be single too. episodes, so Ooh. we're doing it. And we're also recording this episode before the previous episode is edited and posted. So, so you can tell uh. that everything is fine and that we're not busy. We're just trying to crank these out. It's good. But we have two new Apple podcast reviews, one from Sersa5042 and from DPBG27. Nailed it. So thank you both for reaching out. And Twitter interactions from the past few days include from Professor Zoom, Justin, Angel, Columbia America 76, Brie, E thinks about, and Zappi Khan. I want to shout out Brie real quick because she's the one who said uh, that moment when you find the perfect office podcast, but they're already in season nine. It's like, well, this just means you don't have to wait on new episodes. Binge away. Have fun. You can binge. Do it. Well, when you get here, Brie, I hope it's exciting um, to hear your name like nine seasons later. So glad to have you and all of you. Going into our first discussion, we are talking about the episode Stairmageddon. It aired on April 11th of 2013, was directed by Matt Sohn and written by Dan Sterling. The building is having maintenance done on the elevator, so everyone must take the stairs. This proves to be an issue specifically for Stanley, who has a sales call that he now refuses to go on because he refuses to take the stairs. Jim and Pam take steps to work on their relationship, Andy takes steps to further his entertainment career, and Robert Lipton has shocking news for everyone, especially Oscar and Angela. A review has popped up for the documentary following the promos from the last episode. So advanced news reviews, whatever it is, is from the Scranton Times. And several characters are described. I think you have these more concisely noted than I do. Do you want to read through some of these descriptions? Yeah, they really just did three of them. They were almost funny. But I thought that they were interesting uh, more as character stuff than funny things, just because it's cool to see kind of how the documentary views these characters. It says Kevin is the Falstaffian accountant. <laughs> Dwight Schrute is the lead salesman forever chasing a management position he will never get. Ouch. And they get more painful. Andy Bernard, the rudderless trust fund child slash middle manager whose incompetence is emblematic of a declining American economy. And also, it says that a possible explanation for his lack of career focus is his surprising musical talent. He wants that printed out because of all of that, <laughs> there was a, a sliver of, of compliment in there. So he's, he'll take it as that. Okay, so focusing on Angela and the senator and Oscar first, they know that the secret is only days away from letting loose and Robert's career possibly being ruined. So Angela meets with Robert in the parking lot. He says, okay, don't worry. We've scheduled a press conference for later today. All I need is for us to face the camera together as a beloved public servant and his devoted wife. 
Angela doesn't really want to be the devoted wife, but she is married to this person still. And so she says, I'm going to be the best damn, sorry, darn wife there is. She's a better wife than the cursing. And as the wife, she stands next to her husband as he announces to the world that he is indeed gay. And that it wasn't until his marriage to Angela that he discovered how charmless he finds the female body. Ouch, that is so awful. I feel so badly for her. And then he says, thank you, Oscar Martinez, for helping me to find my true self. And thanks to the person I'm in love with. Not Oscar, (laughs) not Angela, my chief of staff, Wesley Silver. So once again, the senator is proving that he's just a garbage person. Like I'm just going to say he's a garbage person. Mm -hmm. Everyone deserves to find that one person who will make them happy. But dragging on Angela and even Oscar the way he did, ruining his marriage, potentially ruining even just the friendship between Angela and Oscar. It's just the worst. And he's a garbage person. The office didn't know, remember, that Robert is gay. It's really only accounting that knows Kevin Angela and Oscar. So with the release of this review of the documentary, it becomes clear that there is a public figure who is going to be outed as gay while preaching family values. Now the office, the vast majority of them doesn't know that they mean Robert, Angela's husband. So they think it's Aaron kind of jokes or doesn't joke that it might be Katie Couric. Phyllis thinks it might be a politician. Now she looks over at accounting. And unless I'm forgetting something huge, when did Phyllis hear or know? Why would she know this? But she looks suspicious. She does look suspicious. She, she does look like she knows things. And I think that just comes from uh, more than anybody else. Phyllis is like the office gossip. And mm. so if she didn't know for sure, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if she maybe suspected things. Or maybe it was a similar situation to back in season five when she found... Dwight and Angela together when Angela was with Andy. And it was just something that the camera crew didn't actually show this time. I I don't know. I think those are both possibilities, but she's just the office gossip. And so, oh, this is juicy. Let's see. Let's, let's connect the dots. There's a politician, devoted wife, family values, gay. Oh yeah. That, that just describes like two and a half people in (laughs) accounting. Yeah. Fair. Anything else to say about Angela here? Not really. I mean, again, I just feel badly for her. And I feel like I say that a lot recently, especially (laughs) because, I mean, things are just going crap for her. And we will have more to say about that in the next episode, too. But it sucks for her. And it sucks for Oscar here, too. He he was thrown for a loop when it was revealed that not only am I gay, but I'm not gay with Oscar, who Oscar thought he was in love with. It's with somebody else. And so both Angela and Oscar sort of tossed to the side here. Now, Andy has started to reach out to talent agents and is disregarded immediately at first. And as we've seen, especially in promos, he's getting extremely emotional and reactive about his talents. He takes praise very excitedly and he takes rejection straight to the heart. And so he's just kind of an emotional mess right now. And he gets so jealous when Angela is the first one to, quote, get famous. She's not on TV because of the documentary. She's on TV because her husband is coming out as gay on TV. So maybe don't be jealous of her because this is not her best moment. But he's jealous. And he's also jealous when the senator mentions Oscar's name. So he just wants fame no matter what. He doesn't know what avenue he wants to take to get there. He plays banjo. He can act a bit. He can sing a bit. 
And so he is just sort of exploiting all of those options and goes to see a talent agent. After the first one disregards him, he gets an appointment (laughs) with the second one. Her name is Carla Fern. And she's probably not the most professional agent. She doesn't seem phased by anything, though, which I guess is good. She sees a lot of interesting people every day and asks Andy if would, you know, would you be willing to dress up as a birthday clown and have kids throw pies at you? And he's like, well, that's not exactly what I want to do, but I get that you have to pay your dues. So sure. And he reluctantly agrees and she signs him on as a client. So he's now got representation. But it seems awfully sketchy. It doesn't seem great. Most talent agents take 10% of whatever job they get you or whatever job you have under their employee. And instead, Carla Fern takes $5,000 up front, which takes out any incentive for her to work for him (laughs) because (laughs) she's already been paid. So it's it doesn't look like a great option, but he's so excited to have an agent that he'll just take it. The way he just attaches himself to any kind of praise that's thrown his way, it it's emblematic of the relationship he tried to have with his parents where he was always trying to get their approval obviously his parents have gone through their own things now and that's not really part of the equation anymore and so he's seeking approval from elsewhere so in the last episode promos he was seeking approval from internet comments and now he's taking that review that one line that said something slightly positive about him he's taken that and he's rolling with it i'm going to be famous because i have surprising musical talent and that's what i'm writing on and you know the reason the first talent agency passes him over is because he calls william morris i looked this place up this has been an agency since like 1895 it is like the agency it has been around forever it has represented tons of famous people and it's the first one he calls it's like what do you expect from this andy this isn't how this works these people that go through william morris are established they're working all the time they're already famous and that that's just how it works for them so they're bringing in a ton of money to this agency and you have had exactly zero paying gigs. like (laughs) you're not gonna be taken on and carla fern she's played by roseanne barr and so just imagine the personality that goes along with that. It's, it's a very Roseanne kind of character. And her office is located in a small like strip mall next to a comic shop and above a printing store and a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> and she also does writers, directors, travel, and real estate. So even she's not putting a whole lot of stock in this whole acting thing, not the way Andy is. And so it'll be interesting to see where things go from here with him. But he's clearly not, not in the right mind on all of this right now, especially think back to David, you're on very, very thin ice. Since that comment, have we seen Andy done a sliver of Dunder Mifflin work? I don't think one thing. (laughs) Not a single thing. It's all been, it's all been moping about Aaron and then bringing Alice and Gabe in. And now it's pursuing fame. And it's just like, everything he's doing is so antithetical to what his actual job is. Yep. He's checked out. He's done. He's still on his boat. I mean, (laughs) he does not want to, doesn't seem like he wants to be here. To get to Jim and Pam, Nellie overhears Pam on the phone with her mom. Helene is watching the kids tonight, and Nellie assumes that Jim and Pam have a hot date, a late night. And Pam admits later that, no, it's nothing that fun. We're actually in marriage counseling. Nellie comments that that's the only kind of counseling she has not had, (laughs) which is sad in its own way because she hasn't had the opportunity. (laughs) Jim is nervous about counseling, which I want to ask you, why do you, why do you think that might be? Uh, Nervous. I mean, it would be nervous, you know, it's it's a nerve wracking thing, but out of the ordinary. I think it's 
it's admitting that there's a problem that needs to be counseled. Mm-hmm. And in Jim's mind, he has hardwired himself to think everything I'm doing is for my family. So where exactly have things gone wrong? Right. And so he, he still doesn't see things from Pam's perspective exactly. He, he's getting there. He's getting closer. We saw that at the end of moving on when Pam said, this isn't what I want. And he's like, oh, and yet here I am having set up a job in another city. Mm-hmm. And so he, he's getting to that point, but he's still like, it, it's, it's the Walter White thing. You know, I, I, I feel like I've referenced Breaking Bad a few times in recent <laughs> episodes, but Walter White, he, he's cooking meth for his family. He needs money for his family. I mean, it's the same sort of situation, obviously more extreme. Jim isn't cooking meth here, <laughs> but he is neglecting his family. And so the counseling is just him admitting, okay, maybe I'm not in the right here. Right. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And it's inviting somebody else into the middle of their problems. Yep. And it's exposing things he might not want to admit about himself and problems he might have. And it's just a whole slew. But anyway, Jim goes to Toby and kind of scares Toby and kind of scares the watcher too. And he asks Toby about his divorce. And it's like, oh man, what are you, are are you getting a divorce? What's going on? And Toby starts to get emotional. And Jim asks specifically about couples counseling. Well, if you did it, if you went through a divorce, surely you went through couples counseling. And Toby's even mortified that they're in counseling. Surely this is the beginning of the end for them. Uh, And he starts to tell Jim that Kelly actually called their divorce in 2013, that she didn't think that they would last even back then. So while Jim is talking to Toby, Pam is actually talking to Nellie. And they're both saying things to their friends that they should be saying to each other, but none of this has been aired. Pam tells Nellie, he took a job in Philly without telling me. He bought our house without telling me. At a certain point, he shouldn't be rewarded for that. Jim says, if I didn't do certain things without telling Pam, she'd be married to Roy. Pam says, I feel like he's always making these decisions for the family without telling me, and I'm left playing catch-up. And then Toby and Jim have this moment where Jim wants her to just hang on, just hang on. It'll be okay. We'll get there. And Toby asks, well, for how long? And Jim doesn't think that that's a fair question. Even if Pam is signing on to be unhappy, he doesn't know when, when that's going to end. And then the last pair of them are a big mirror. Pam says that she's sure athlete will be a huge success, but I don't want him to do it anymore. And I'm not going to give him an ultimatum, but I'm not moving our family to Philly. Jim says again to Toby, well, if Pam says she won't go to Philly, then we're going to need a lot more than counseling. Yikes. Yeah. (laughs) So I I have a couple of questions related to that back and forth. First off, Jim says, if I didn't do certain things without telling Pam, she'd be married to Roy. What exactly did he do without telling her that led to him being with him instead? Is he referring specifically to moving to Stanford? Um, I'm either inclined to think that it's something we didn't see on camera, mm-hmm. or he means more that he tells her things that she might need to do, like be taken more seriously by her fiancé who does not take her seriously, and you deserve better than this, and why are you with a guy who's like this? Oh, we actually just got a comment on the uh, Twitch chat that says, uh, kissing Pam on casino night, right? Yeah, I was going to mention that as well. Thank you. That's very possible. Yes, doing things sort of for Pam, like, like that, kind of planting that seed, like, hey, this is this is what I want for us, whether or not she wanted it, which sounds, that sounds like a consent issue. I don't mean it to be like that. 
I'm rambling, but <laughs> I don't know specifically what what it is he's referencing. Yeah, that was just a more general question, but I have another one. This is actually my discussion topic that I'll just put in here. So this was the first time that Pam mentioned Jim buying the house without telling her as a bad thing. In the moment, thinking back to that episode, she seemed really grateful. I mean, do you think that her opinion of Jim buying his parents' house without telling her has changed in light of this whole athlete situation? Or is she just using it to illustrate Jim's pattern of making big decisions without her? And in, re- in retrospect, is it even okay that Jim did this in the first place? Is it too big a decision for him to make a loan, even for the sake of surprise and romance? I would say that she's probably just pointing out a pattern, a habit that he has. Because she did seem very happy and excited, and it is a big move and a big step to make without consulting your partner, but I think there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. But if the trend of this habit is negative and it starts to be a bad habit rather than a positive habit, I think she's just pointing to the bigger habit here and that it is starting to trend downward. Okay. Yeah. I think I agree with that. This whole episode is kind of painting Jim as the bad guy. There's been a lot of shades of gray from both characters, this whole story arc. But I would agree that Jim is sort of the bad guy here because of how inflexible and uncompromising he's being. Because remember, they initially decided together against him pursuing this. He did it anyway. When he eventually told her Pam was flexible, said, sure, go pursue this. We'll see what happens. And now Jim has just all but completely neglected his family for the pursuit of this job. And again, for his family, question mark, there's a disconnect. And now now he's so absorbed an athlete that he's just blinded to the important thing and to the reason that he started pursuing this in the first place, which was his family. And it just leads to the question, what good is it to do something for the good of your family if you neglect your family to do it? Right. And we haven't been privy to the numbers, to the money that this is going to bring in. Maybe long term, they're going to make a ton of money from it. It was an awfully big investment, $10,000 off the front. So maybe this will be eventually for the good of the family, but it's definitely not right now. And it doesn't seem worth it to Pam, whatever the number is, whatever the magic number is, it doesn't seem worth it or the pain right now. Well, at the end of the day, they leave together. And something I do appreciate as they head off to couples counseling is the sort of gentle touch that Jim gives Pam. He reaches out and just touches her shoulder as they approach the car. And it's almost as as if he's trying to communicate that there's still love, there's still affection. What we're about to do with counseling is to try and mend the cracks, if nothing else. And so it's a small gesture, but I admire the, the small things that it says. He has another bigger, small moment in the next episode, which I equally appreciate but we'll talk about that in a minute. Mm-hmm. Oh, please, let's move on to some lighter things. <laughs> Stanley, as I mentioned, takes forever to get up the stairs. And I was under the impression that the office was on the <laughs> second, maybe the third floor. I'm pretty sure it's right? the second floor. We established that pretty early on, looking at the marquee in the front. I think their suite number is like 201. So yeah. it's, it's, it's on the second floor. It's on the... Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he cannot do it. And Aaron is in like workout clothes. They call it Stairmageddon. It is a flight of stairs, guys. (laughs) One flight. But he takes, you know, a good chunk of time to get up there. Everyone is mid-work day. And uh, by the time he's up there, it's immediately time to go back down and go on a sales call with Dwight. But he refuses. Dwight insists. This is a huge sale. Oh, and Stanley knows the buyer. It's his sister's friend, her best friend. Oh, and it's for the entire Lackawanna school district. So you're going. 
And Stanley still refuses. So when Dwight goes to Andy, asks him what he should do about it, Andy is, of course, distracted with this whole talent agency thing and tells Dwight he can do whatever he wants. So, of course, Dwight takes that to mean that he can do whatever he wants and <laughs> loads up the tranquilizer dart that he, of course, keeps in his car and shoots Stanley three times in the chest. And he's out. So we're obviously going to... <laughs> this is a silly situation. Like, we're not going to ignore <laughs> that, but we don't need to talk about it for too long. It's silly. Okay? Let's move past it. It's not but, realistic. But it's but. also important to think about Dwight's mindset in this, because I think that says a lot about the silliness. So we, we mentioned the description of him in the review, talking about him forever chasing a manager position that he will never get. And so he's maybe even further hurt. He's already His feelings are already hurt then, but they're maybe even further hurt by the fact that once Stanley does make it upstairs and Dwight says, hey, we have to leave for a sales call. And Stanley says, nope, you're not my boss and you never will be. So his feelings are hurt. He's thinking it, it's really prominent in his mind right now that he's never going to be manager. Still, he's been fighting for it for a long time and he's still not going to be manager. And he's maybe getting to the point where he accepts that. And he has a talking head. He says, you know, for the last five years, I've held my instincts in check because I wanted to be made manager. But now everyone is telling him that it's never going to happen. And obviously he's no closer now than he was when Michael left. So this is sort of him saying to hell with it. And just doing what he wants to do to get the job done. So that's where the silliness comes from, is mm -hmm. Dwight just says, okay, I'm not holding back anymore. I've got a bull tranquilizer in my car. Let's do this. <laughs> now they have the trouble. Well, I say they. Clark gets wrapped into all this because he's in the room when it happens and questions Dwight about the dosage of all of this. I don't know if he was initially meant to go on the sales call, but he is now. So they are now tasked with getting Stanley downstairs without the elevator. And they wrap him in bubble wrap and put a helmet on him and try to slide him down the stairs. And Dwight suggests that Clark gets to the bottom to sort of blunt his descent. <laughs> but Stanley slides off on his own and his head bashes a hole in the wall. So it's a good thing that Clark was not there. And I'm surprised Stanley didn't break his neck, but he didn't. He's okay. As, you know, as okay as you are with three tranquilizer darts in your chest. <laughs> And they finally, finally get into the car, still bubble-wrapped, and to the client's office. And when they enter, he's barely awake, he's incredibly loopy, and of course the client notices. She knows him, and Dwight says, he covers decently, he says, oh, he gets car sick really easily, he's not feeling well, don't worry about it. But a very tranquilizer-drunk Stanley manages to save the day by complimenting a picture of the buyer's grandchild on her desk, and flatters her into the sale, and he, he saved the day, and they made the sale but then they have to go back to Dunder Mifflin. <laughs> and they make it back to Dunder Mifflin. And by the time they, they get back to the office, Dwight's proud of himself. He says, I may not ever be manager, but I managed to get our most stubborn salesman to close a sale with one of our biggest clients. And Stanley's mostly so sobered up at this point. And he's, he's like, oh, okay, cool. I made a sale. Way to go me. That's awesome. Yet he refuses to climb the stairs again. <laughs> and so he says, you got me down. You have to get me back up. <laughs> and he takes another trank dart from Dwight's belt, stabs his leg, droops to the floor, happy and loopy again. And Dwight just says, we need a winch and a hoist. <laughs> and that's the episode. Yep. <laughs> what a great transition into some funny moments. The cold open. Stanley walks into the building. In what looks like a really good mood for once. He's singing under his breath, and that all stops when he sees the elevator is having maintenance done. And as I said, Aaron is in workout clothes to climb the single flight of stairs. In a talking head, she says Dwight is having maintenance done on the elevator today, and he was really on top of it. 
weeks ago, he started the Stairmageddon awareness campaign. The idea was to get us prepared, both mentally and physically, for a day that hopefully comes once in a hundred years. It's a Mageddon. And then there's an Oscar talking head. He says, our office has an unusually large number of unusually large people. So when something as routine as elevator maintenance happens and people are forced to expend cardiovascular effort, we have to compare it to the end of time. (laughs) He has a point. Yep. (laughs) Andy runs into the office and says, I just got a text from my brother, ScrantonTimesTribune.com. There's a review of the documentary. And Phyllis just goes, what does it say? And he says, I don't know, Phyllis. I just got the text and started screaming, red alert. (laughs) Dwight says, well, the alert was already set to red because of Stairmageddon. You think I should set it to double red? (laughs) And he says, with all seriousness, says, I think we should. I think we should. A couple more Stanley things about the stairs. First of all, he's just so mad about it. And everyone's upstairs working and he's on the stairs gulping five-hour energy and groaning and sweating. And it should be noted, by the way, that Kevin, who is arguably a bigger guy, is upstairs and totally fine. And then Stanley starts to yell at Dwight about the fact that he's definitely not going on the sales call. And he says that whole, you'll never be my boss thing. And then he demands that Pete bring him his iced tea with three sugars and five creams, uh, which is a tradition. It's his morning three by five. So... I, I'm sure after one of those every morning, the stairs would get a little bit more difficult. But just, just a little bit. He's, he's not stopping. <laughs> Some of the Dwight and Clark back and forth from that whole storyline. Dwight says, don't worry, it's just a bull tranquilizer. Nothing to be alarmed about. It's just a man pointing a bull tranquilizer at a co-worker. There's some reason for alarm there. <laughs> and Clark says, is he, is he going to be okay? I mean, weren't those darts intended for an animal like two to three times larger than him? You referenced this conversation earlier. Dwight says, This dosage was meant for a very small bull, and Stanley's got way more body fat than they do. Clark says, well, you gave him three shots. (laughs) And yeah, uh, yeah. one more just while I'm at it, because this whole storyline is just ridiculous and amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Dwight and Clark, they have hoisted Stanley onto a desk chair, and they're pushing him down the hallway. And Dwight says, let's (laughs) go right to the top of the stairs, okay? And Clark says, and then what? I says, okay, listen, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, but I've never actually done this before. <laughs> and Clark just says, well, if I may, you're a natural. Just try to appease him. Twice says, thank you. I mean, I rehearsed it in my head like a thousand times, but <laughs> Clark just says, okay, that's a little weird. Like I draw the line at praising you right there. <laughs> and right before that immediate conversation, as they're hoisting Stanley towards the stairs, it's I just love the small talk while they're dragging a lifeless body. (laughs) Any weekend plans? Oh, I might see a movie. Nice. What about you? Oh, I don't know. Uh, You know, (laughs) I might have a couple things lined up as if this was normal. When Stanley is is yelling at Dwight about the fact that he owns the building, why can't you fix this elevator in the middle of the night? That would make sense. And Dwight (laughs) says, well, I did say this would be an inconvenience. And he holds up a sign that just says elevator out of service. This is an inconvenience. And it has not a smiley face, not a sad face, but just a neutral face. <laughs> like, this is what it is. I'm, I'm not saying sorry about it. <laughs> uh, they get to the client, uh, the, the school district or wherever it is. And Stanley is still just like very loopy. Dwight says, oh, God, this is bad. Looks like we've got no choice. You, my friend, talking to Clark, you, my friend, are going to have to be Stanley Hudson. <laughs> Clark just says, isn't the client like best friends with his sister? 
Dwight pauses for a second. New plan. Okay. We get him a cup of coffee and we go back to the old plan. <laughs> like he didn't think about that. Dwight's verbiage for Stanley's body is really, I, I guess it's what he's used to, but it is not what Clark is used to. As they're trying to lift Stanley into Dwight's car, he says, okay, well, I'll grab the four legs and you push his hindquarters. Clark says, well, just say arms and legs, okay? That's the vernacular that I'm comfortable with. And Dwight says, hoist his shank on three. What's a shank? It's by the tenderloin. Okay, well, he's not a cow and he (laughs) has arms and legs, so let's call them that. You mentioned this in the review earlier. Kevin is referred to as Falstaffian. I looked up what this means. It means relating to or resembling Shakespeare's character, Sir John Falstaff, in being fat, jolly, and debauched. That's from Henry mm-hmm. IV, parts one and two. So I just wanted to clear that up for anybody who didn't know. Another Kevin moment, though, during the press conference, they're all watching, and Robert makes his announcement and then shouts out Oscar, and Aaron says, Oscar's with the senator, too? Kevin has this moment. He says, yes, and I knew it the whole time. I kept the secret. I kept the secret so good. You didn't know, you didn't know, and you didn't freaking know, but I knew. And Oscar's just like, he knew. (laughs) He held on to it. (laughs) Yes, we did it. Oh, I I did it. And he just like has to sit down for a moment (laughs) to like collect himself because he was so excited that he did it. I honestly can't believe he did it. We were all so sure five minutes in that he would explode. So (laughs) he held on. Yeah. A few Andy ones. He doesn't quite understand how view counts work on videos. <laughs> he says, it's insane. This promo with me playing banjo has 250 views already. And every time I click, there's more. 251. 252. I can't even keep up. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I think he watched about 240 of them. Yeah, probably. Probably. Because there were only, what, like, three comments on the last video. Yeah. <laughs> Meredith, seeing exactly how... <laughs> Quickly and how effectively those bull tranquilizers take effect on Stanley, she grabs one for herself and she squeezes the the sedative into her coffee. So while Stanley's off on his sales meeting, uh, Meredith seems to probably be having a pretty good day back at the office herself. Pretty chill. Andy meets an interesting guy at the agent's office. Andy asks if he's an actor and he says, no, I, I have an act though, dog, cat, mouse. And it's <laughs> a dog with a cat on top with a mouse on top. Andy asks, oh, that's cool. Is it hard to train them to do that? The guy says, oh, you go through a lot of mice. (laughs) And then the man has a talking head. He said, it started by accident, as these things tend to do. You know, I was setting down my cat and I accidentally put her on top of my dog. And I was like, so mad at myself at first. (laughs) And then I was like, wait, wait a second. (laughs) (laughs) The way he just pauses is so funny. Uh, by the so way, mad. this guy is Paul Feig. He's a yes. uh, famous director. He's, he's acted in a couple of things, too. If you've ever seen Heavyweights, he's in that. He's also, I believe, directed or maybe written or maybe both. I can't remember. Several episodes of The Office. Oh, several. I have a few listed. So many great episodes. He directed Office Olympics, Dinner Party, Niagara, and Goodbye, Michael. So those are just a small handful. And he's directed several more there. And uh, at one point after his talking head, Andy says, well, does anything go on top of the mouse? He says, yeah. And he holds up a little hat. <laughs> Andy just says, oh, that's cute. What's the mouse's name? He says, oh, you know, it doesn't really make sense to name the mice. They're kind of like cannon fodder. You know, you're not one of those PETA guys, are you? <laughs> and at the end of the episode, as Andy is leaving, uh, we see that the cat has indeed eaten the mouse. <laughs> just a little hat hanging out. <laughs> 
going into deleted scenes, there's just a, a small handful for this episode. Uh, the very first one, Andy shows up in Daryl's office and he says, I want to cut your firm in on the Andy Bernard business. I want to be repped by athlete. Daryl, thinking fast, says, oh, I'm sorry, man. We only represent athletes. That's what the ath stands for. <laughs> and he says, oh, so you just get more fame and wealth for people who already have it? That's the idea. Well, it's a little like shooting fish in a barrel, don't you think? Daryl says, you know, we have a board meeting tomorrow. I can't make any promises, but I'm pretty sure I won't bring it up. <laughs> and he says, but you can't make any promises. Daryl says, I can't make any promises. And he says... I'm just going to say this. You can do with it whatever you want. On my acting resume, under special skills, fencing, and tetherball. Those are sports, so just think about it. Daryl says, okay, I'm going, I'm going to write that down. Fencing. <laughs> and he watches Andy leave, and then he just stares at the camera as if, he, as if he's saying, do you see why I'm leaving this place? <laughs> Oscar has a talking head expressing how worried he is for Robert about the upcoming documentary. There's a video of Robert and Oscar kissing, and if that's outed, it will be the end of Robert's political career. But at least he won't have to pretend to love Angela anymore, that of all the beards a man can have, she's got to be one of the itchiest. Ooh. That's the second... There, there was once in the episode where Angela was referred to as the beard as well. Mm -hmm. And just for the sake of clarifying for people who don't know, beard in this case refers to a wife that a gay man is using to hide his homosexuality. Yeah. So there's that. And that's what she is playing for him. So yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, then we get uh, a little bit more from the press conference. A reporter asks, Senator Lipton, what effect will this have on your family arrangement? Will you and Mrs. Lipton continue living together? And Angela steps in at this point and says, of course, as you know, Robert and I have a young child. But then Robert interrupts and says, I'll be moving in with Wesley. Angela's caught off guard. What? He says, we need to know who we are as a couple. Angela says, Robert, we never discussed this. Another reporter says, will you take this opportunity to promote change in the Republican Party with respect to their stance on gay marriage? Robert responds, no, I'll just be switching to the Democratic Party. <laughs> Angela's just like, what? And she knocks over the mic stand and storms off. I didn't think, I didn't know you could do that. I mean, obviously you can, but just like, just switch. boom, I switch. Like, <laughs> I guess so. I guess it's that easy. But the way he says it so matter of factly, like, duh like, like i'm just gonna switch parties i'm gay like i can't be it's, it's just, like i was never republican to begin with yeah i just i'm obviously gonna be switching it's pretty funny you've done our discussion topic so moving on to paper airplane it aired april 25th 2013 was directed by jesse peretz and written by halstead sullivan and warren lieberstein a paper airplane contest is taking place at Dunder Mifflin Scranton with a $2,000 cash prize going to the winner. So competition is high to see who wins the money. Andy gets his first acting gig through his new agent, Carla Fern, and Pam and Jim struggle through couples counseling homework. There is a lot in this episode, guys. A lot of plot. So let's get started. Let's start with Andy, who is rehearsing lines for a chemical safety film that he booked, which is great. He booked a thing, but he got cocky. He says, last week I got an agent and this week I got a movie. Yeah, I mean, it's great. And that's one of those things that pays and people got to hire actors for it, but it's not very glamorous. When he shows up for the film, it is not glamorous and he expects that it will be. And a woman approaches him and asks for his picture. And he thinks that somehow, somehow he's already famous. Uh, but then really, they just need this photo in case they burn some of his hair off because it isn't an active lab. So, okay, a little bit less glamorous. 
And when it comes time to film, he's all smiley and bubbly while giving warnings about these chemicals that could kill you. And the director hates it. <laughs> Please stop doing that. Don't make this so cheery. It's, it's an informational video. Do it like you're, I don't know, reporting the news or something. So Andy makes a joke of it and imitates Tom Brokaw. And I just said, dude, time is money. Do your job. They don't know you. They don't want you to joke around and just just take the note and do the thing. <laughs> just yeah. do it. This is shooting a safety video for like a chemical handling company. This is not an acting gig. It's officially a read this line while the camera is pointed at you gig. You know, it's <laughs> like he's making things out to be bigger or different than they actually are. And th this is so completely unglamorous and it's supposed to be unglamorous. It was never intended to be equivalent to movie stardom. And he talks about making character choices and he's actually acting and again this is not that kind of gig you stand in front of the camera you read the lines with your most boring voice and you do the things you're supposed to do you get paid and you leave now he, he establishes at the beginning of the episode through certain circumstances toby got hit in the eye with a paper airplane and so his eye is gross and gooey and andy had apparently wanted to see it but he says you know I can't handle the thought of things going in eyes. And so I can't actually even look at that right now, Toby. Sorry, go. Unfortunately for him, the chemical video people want him to use the eye wash station, which just freaks him out. And he says obnoxious things like, so I'm just going to lean over this thing and you'll add the water special effects later. And the guy's like, WTF, water special effects? Like, what are you talking about? We've got water right there. <laughs> not and, a high budget film. <laughs> and Andy says, I'm sorry, I'm not comfortable doing my own stunts. I'll get nude if you want me to. And he's like, no, we don't want you nude. This isn't even a stunt. You're putting water in your face. And he complains to Carla about it. Andy does. And she just shows absolutely no pity because there's no pity to be had here. Like you showed up for a job. You do the job. You leave. You were hired to do this. And uh, Andy's agent comes over and yells at him and tells him that she'll spread bad word about him if he doesn't do the job he was hired to do. And Andy starts crying. But Daryl's there and Daryl pep talks him. And tells him that though Andy might be scared, that's understandable, but older male lab assistant isn't. So be the character you're playing and just do it. So Andy finally does the take and screams the entire way through it, but they can take the sound out in post, so it's okay. <laughs> they can keep it. Andy is so lucky to have a friend like Daryl. Daryl is so clearly exasperated by all this being drug around and well, he's not even being drug around. He's willingly driving Andy to this thing and he's helping Andy read these lines that it's absurd. The things that Andy is putting Daryl through, but he sticks through. He's there, which is saying something. And he gives advice that is perfect for Andy. That advice about, you know, Andy can't do this, but the character he's playing can. That's like, if you want to appeal to Andy, that's the thing you say, you know? <laughs> and so, yeah, it gets kind of ridiculous, but he does get the shot and it's all because of Daryl. And yeah, Daryl kind of does it just because he wants to go home. But hey, he's still there. And so Andy's just really lucky that he has a friend like that. Moving on to Angela. So Angela has moved out of the Lipton household. And the senator, I mean, the senator, he didn't even leave her the house. Like... Of all the stuff he just did, cheated on her twice with two different men, and he kicked her out. I have feelings about that. So she is living in a studio apartment with Philip, her baby, and her 15 cats. So, again, feelings. Uh, and she's struggling. Angela has a talking head. She says, I had a chance with Dwight, but I didn't take it. And if I went back now, when I'm broke, and he just inherited a farm, I would be one of those gold-digging tramps you read about that try to bag a farmer. Now, I can't relate to the story, to the anecdote, but I get what she's trying to say. 
that since she rejected him, their situations had both changed a lot. And if she were to go reach out to him, it might look like she was being opportunistic and she doesn't want to appear that way. But her situation has changed drastically in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, it's announced that the winner of the paper airplane contest is going to get $2,000. And all of a sudden, she's she's desperately at her desk folding paper airplanes, trying to practice and get it really good. Because that $2,000, yeah, it's not a whole lot, but it can make a big difference for today or for this week or however long it's going to last. And she she does make it sound like if she could, she would go back to Dwight. She would go to him. But she had the chance and she didn't take it. And so it's her pride that is keeping her from uh, pursuing that route. And Dwight at the same time says, yeah, I gave Angela a chance and she turned me down. But then he says, you know, I would be open to her coming back if she was the one to make the move. He says, if she changes her mind, the next move is hers. But unfortunately, because of her pride, it doesn't sound like she's going to make any kind of move soon, uh, especially with him being with Esther now and seeming happy with that. So the paper airplane contest is now much more important to Angela. She does take it much more seriously. She's really pleased to see Dwight sort of rooting for her against Kevin. She also goes against Toby and Toby just crumples up his airplane after she throws hers pretty successfully. I mean, it would have been hard to beat. But do you think there's any reason why Toby just gave up when he went against her? Was it because he was giving up or was he doing it for the benefit of Angela as well? Any ideas there? I don't know that he had any specific feelings towards Angela at this moment. Um, We didn't see them really interact much in that front during this episode. I think he just had a really bad day (laughs) with his eye and then what we will see later as well. I I would imagine he was just giving up. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I I think that's a fair point. (laughs) (laughs) It comes down to her and Dwight in the finals. And at this point, Esther is actually there. And they each get a chance to throw two planes. And the first one, she accidentally messes up. Dwight purposefully whiffs his two. And she kind of smiles to herself. She's like, oh, cool. Look what Dwight's doing for me. But Dwight had told Esther earlier, I pity Angela. I pity that woman over there. The reason we're rooting for her is because she was recently in a situation where she could have had it all. And instead, she lost everything. And it's almost like as he says that, he's saying that about himself, too. He didn't lose it all. But he could have had everything. He lost Angela instead. Mm-hmm. So then before the second throw, Esther comes up to Angela and tells her that Dwight told her about Angela's situation and that they want her to win and they're rooting for her. And Esther's just so freaking positive and just so happy. And it just makes Angela mad. Like, don't patronize me. And Esther advises Angela to use the money wisely. And it's just, it's just patronizing and Angela doesn't want to hear it. So. Angela goes over to Dwight and tells him that he had better not tank this. And she doesn't give a reason, but he believes her and he won't. So he throws a good throw and his plane goes to the end of the room. And then Angela tanks her throw. So Dwight has won. And then there's an Angela talking head. She says, I was disappointed in Dwight today. He showed a weakness that was unbecoming. Even if he did do it for me, I don't need pity and I don't need charity. I have dignity and that's enough. And as long as I have that, I'll be okay. But as she's speaking that talking head, we see that she's stealing toilet paper out of the office's restroom. I mean, she is watching this like makes me hate the senator so much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just after all the stuff he did. And then he left her with with nothing. Yeah. And um, yeah, she calls her living situation right now a studio apartment. But that's that's a laughable description of what she has. It's like a single room. It's very small. 
It's got a giant baby crib for Philip to sleep in, and she's sleeping on like a small couch. So she doesn't have much at all. Now, yeah. referring to her change of attitude in the middle of this contest against Dwight, uh, when it was Dwight just doing something nice for her, she seemed happy about it. She has a little smile. But then when it was Dwight sharing some of her story to his new girlfriend, it became about charity. It became about doing something because they think she needs the help. But even though you know she says she has her dignity, you mentioned she she's leaving with an armful of toilet paper from the women's bathroom. So things are not going well. That $2,000 obviously didn't go into her pocket. So she's having to scrounge where she can. Now moving into Jim and Pam. As we mentioned, they are in couples counseling and they're trying. I mean, they're doing their homework, but it is strained. It's awkward and they're not communicating well. They have this homework, which is to take every opportunity that they can to appreciate and acknowledge each other's sacrifices. Jim says it's because he needs to appreciate what Pam is sacrificing for him. And they're also supposed to speak their truths, as their therapist said, aka air their grievances. Because if Pam had spoken about her truth earlier, about Philly, maybe they wouldn't have had the, quote, opportunity for a couple's therapy. So they are doing this exercise all day long, and it's kind of passive-aggressive, and it's kind of snarky, and it's just uncomfortable. There's this whole exchange here where Pam tells Jim that she made them a date to take her mom out to dinner to thank her for all the extra babysitting that she's doing, you know, so that they can go to couples counseling. And Jim says, oh, well, you know how much I appreciate the opportunity to hang out with your mom more. So let me just put this in my calendar. Already sarcastic, already not great. And Pam tries to remember the exercise. I acknowledge with gratitude that you are being kind and responsible enough to include it in your calendar. And then again, Jim is really sarcastic. Thank you. Your mom is a treasure. Like, this is not necessary. This is not fun, but you don't need to do this. They keep going, and they're trying to do this exercise, and Jim gets a phone call, and it's from Athlete, and he drops this sarcastic facade immediately when he's on the phone. It's like he just flips a switch. And Pam asks him, hey, I'd like you to hang up because we're talking. We're in the middle of a conversation. And Jim just, okay, hangs up the phone without a word. It's, it's all... Oh, it's so tense. I've obviously got a whole lot of notes <laughs> for this part <laughs> of the discussion. Yeah. Uh, there was an earlier point in the episode where we see how being honest with each other at this point starts revealing the disconnect that has grown between the two of them. There's one point where Jim gets Pam an Earl Grey tea, which I love. I love Earl Grey tea. And Pam yeah. used to, but she says, you know, I acknowledge and I appreciate the gesture, but I switched to coffee in March. So her husband doesn't even know what she likes to drink every day anymore. I uh, remember back in season four when she was at art school and he was able to tell over the phone exactly what she wanted for her coffee down to the sprinkle of cinnamon. That's gone. Mm -hmm. So that shows how distant he's been. And it shows how job-centered instead of family-centered Jim has been. Speaking of the phone call you, you mentioned, there's not a sorry. There's not an excuse me. There's a, hey, that's work. Hold on. And he picks up the phone. Mm -hmm. And Pam's line after this exchange back and forth breaks me. After Jim is hung up, Pam says, I wish we'd started this exercise six months ago. This is a talking head. She says, my heart feels so blocked up. And after so much neglect, Pam's discontent has just, you know, bubbled to the surface and she's not trying to force it back down anymore. She's being pretty straightforward with everything. If Jim isn't putting her or the family first for real and not just in his mind, then she's telling him about it. And so when he does hang up and she sarcastically thanks him for the sacrifice, Jim says, hey, that was a little unfair. Pam says, you know what? 
I've been putting the kids to bed by myself every night for months. And you had to miss one phone call. Is that your truth, Jim? Is that really your truth? He says, you know what? I'll just swallow my truth. And at this point in the show, it just seems, it seems hopeless. They're not happy. They're going through this exercise that seems to be adding to their stress in their lives. Not that I think that it's necessarily a bad idea. I'm glad they're being honest with each other. And if they're doing it right and not being sarcastic with each other, I can see how it would be helpful. But maybe it's just because it's been so far, so long of Jim pursuing athlete. It's almost like they've forgotten how in love with each other they were just a couple of seasons back. And it, it's painful. It, it seems hopeless at that point in the episode. When Jim says, I guess I will swallow my truth, I kind of hurt for him there too, because he should be allowed to speak his truths like they were instructed to do. I don't think that, while I don't necessarily agree with his decision to pick up his work call, in fact, I don't agree with it, all he says is, I think that that's unfair, which he's allowed to think, even if it's not the general consensus. He's allowed to think that. And Pam kind of spats that and then because they disagree he feels like he can't speak his truth and so he doesn't he says okay i I will swallow it i will not communicate that anymore and i think it's that that's such a dangerous place to be when you decide to stop communicating it's just what brian was saying Mm -hmm. when you choose to stop fighting when you choose to stop communicating that's when the relationship is in danger And if you start to swallow your emotions and swallow what you want to say and you swallow your truths, to use the therapy word, that's when it starts to get really dangerous. And so when Pam says her heart feels blocked up, this is threat level midnight. This is bad. (laughs) This is like (laughs) you are not communicating with your spouse and this could end. I I was going to reference the same conversation with Brian actually here in just a minute. But as hopeless as things seem at that point, we get the moment that we've been waiting for since the storyline started, which is the confirmation that things are going to be okay between them. There was the scare with Brian, you know, the idea that would Pam or even could Pam cheat on Jim and he's gone. But after he's gone, we still didn't know if they'd make it through this still married. And this first half of the episode didn't seem like it. But then Jim, after this incredibly difficult, incredibly stressful day, he goes up to her. He kneels down next to her. He's really intimate. It's very genuine. And he says, I know this was really weird and it was really hard, but I think we're making progress. So I'm I'm really sorry that I have to go. Let's keep at this, okay? And she just says, Okay. And that's it. Remember, her her heart is blocked up. And he stands up and he he leaves. He grabs his coat. He turns around to wave goodbye and she's not looking. So he leaves and she turns around too late. He's already gone. But then something changes with her. She sees his umbrella left left on his desk. And even though it doesn't look like it's going to rain, it's probably not going to. She uses it as an opportunity, a good opportunity here to see him again. So she goes outside. She calls him just as he's getting into the taxi. And she hands over the umbrella. They smile at each other. They give a gentle kiss on the cheek. Goodbye. Uh, So it's a better goodbye than it was up in the office. But then it's like a moment of almost panic in Jim. He looks down at her and he he can't think of the right words to say. He's like stumbling over his words. He doesn't know. And all of a sudden, he grabs her in his arms. And it's a deep, desperate hug. Yeah. And she doesn't know what to do at first. She doesn't reciprocate. 
but he holds her all the closer the whole time. And I think that is so important that Jim, yeah, she's not hugging him back, but Jim's holding on for dear life because he knows what he has. He knows what he fought for in the first couple of seasons, and he knows how lucky he is to have Pam. And at this point, he does not want to lose her. And I think that Jim in that moment decided, I'm grabbing you now and I'm not letting go. And that's when we get the moment that starts bringing all the tears. So I'll let you take over. (laughs) Thanks. Before we get to that, it's just really, really silly that watching this episode, like what, two weeks before I get married, was amazing. I was like, this is such good TV. This is such a reminder of like what it all is about. Uh And watching Jim... Like, as you say, hug her for dear life, for his life, for what they have is just so freaking good. So as he's hugging her, we hear the famous words from 1 Corinthians 13, which are often said at weddings, and it was said at their wedding. And we kind of flash back and forward between images from their wedding, from video from their wedding, and this hug. And 1 Corinthians is, of course, the love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't boast, it's not prideful. As we hear this, Finally, you can kind of tell that these words are playing in Pam's head. These are their marriage vows. This is what they promised. And she just (sighs) sigh, grabs him and hugs him back. And it's just great TV, NBC, well done. They, They kiss and laugh and smile and they tell each other simultaneously in unison that they love each other. I love you. And that's all that matters. That's all that's important. That's all that this was about. All the therapy, all of the truths and opportunities, and that's a good exercise, and that's great, but all they needed to remember is that I love you. That's it. Yeah, I want to go ahead and read that whole voiceover just because it's got a lot of good things that I think was really running through Pam's head. It says, love suffers long and is kind. It is not proud. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It never fails. And that's when they start hugging. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And yes, they say, I love you. Yes, they smile at each other. They kiss. And it's a passionate kiss. It's not like kiss on the cheek like they gave earlier. And we know, like, we don't have to have any other confirmation. We know they're going to be okay. We know they're going to make it. And, you know, I have my notes on that Brian conversation now, so I'll go ahead and just go through my notes. Brian said that his marriage to Alyssa felt alive when they were fighting, and it, stopped, it was when they stopped fighting that the fire went out and things died. And we we had talked about in just the last episode, episode before, the complacency that sort of precedes divorce and how you stop seeking out opportunities to be together or to fix problems. But here we see that both of them are still fully dedicated to to making things better to rekindling that love for each other despite the problems. And I'm I'm just so excited at this point, one, to be sort of at the the culmination of this long, painful arc of two characters going through very real things and making it out the other side. And so I'm, I'm glad that they've reached this point and I'm glad to see where they go from here. I had a couple of notes that I didn't get to say about the um, about Jim kneeling at Pam's desk and saying, this is hard and weird, but let's keep trying. Pam in this moment doesn't react how I want her to or how Jim wants her to. It's easier to keep being petty and awkward and sarcastic for both of them. It's easier to leave mad and to not break down that wall, but he 
breaks that and he he breaks the sarcasm and the pettiness to be real and authentic and open keep going keep fighting keep trying and she shrugs and says okay and it's just heartbreaking and then as you said she she sees the umbrella and then she just kind of jumps out of her chair like i have to run down and meet him and give him his umbrella i have to see him again because that cannot be how he leaves town again and there was just an urgency and then one of the best scenes in the entire series and in the world as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. They finally remembered the simplest thing. The thing that it's all based on is that they love each other and that everything else, like in your marriage vows, it doesn't say, I promise to love you and cherish you and put you first unless work gets in the way. No, it says I put you first no matter what. And that's what they're mm -hmm. remembering here. That above all else, they have to come first and that they do. Oh, it's good. Okay, everybody. <laughs> Therapy <laughs> exercise. Every take a big breath in. Everybody take a big breath out. <sighs> Jim and Pam are okay. They're okay. And they're going to be okay. It's so good. We made it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go into the funny stuff. Go out on a high. Yes. The cold open intros the paper airplane contest that is put on by Wirehammer Paper. Dwight says, in an effort to get us to sell more of their new product, Airstream Deluxe A4, the Cadillac of paper. <laughs> it's not so easy on the environment, if you know what I mean. He says it's practically made of plastic. <laughs> Those are the real thick stuff. And uh, we see Aaron's competitive side starting to come out. Clark says, quarterfinals in an hour. Hope you got some sleep because I'm going to be haunting your nightmares tonight. Aaron says, I did. I got some really good sleep. Clark says, did you? And he starts pushing the pencil cup at her and she grabs them all out. <laughs> so uh, we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But then Nellie is the one running this because she is a head of special projects. And she says, we started with 16 brave aviators. Some use skill. And we see Kevin flying a paper airplane. It's just normal paper airplane. So she says, others relied on showmanship. And we see Dwight throwing an airplane at Nate. <laughs> and he's got an apple on his head. Others seem to not comprehend what a paper airplane is. <laughs> And we see Creed throwing a melon, just like a cantaloupe, um, which are probably the only uses for cantaloupe. Um, <laughs> Haven't we established your hatred for cantaloupe before on We this established podcast? both of our hatred for yes. cantaloupe at one point. I guess we did. <laughs> I guess we did. Yes. It's not and good. So, and so he, he tosses a cantaloupe instead of a paper airplane, and then he turns around and bows at everybody, like, look what I have done. Look at the fruits of my labor. Uh, I'm sorry for that. And <laughs> That went over and my then, head. Oh, no. <laughs> and then uh, she finishes with, and of course, there was the odd moment of heartbreak and disaster. And that's when we see Toby get his eye poked out by Pam's airplane. And she's momentarily worried about Toby as he clutches his eye on the ground. Not, not the eye on the ground. He is on the ground <laughs> clutching his eye. <laughs> the eye is still and attached. She, yeah. She's more concerned about, is this where my plane actually lands? Like, does this count? Oh, okay, fine. So... <laughs> That's the cold open. <laughs> and then Nellie says that they go from 16 competitors to an elite eight. Well, seven and Toby. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Toby's gooey eye earlier and how Andy wanted to see it but couldn't. And I just liked the dialogue here, so I'll go through it. Toby enters Andy's office. Says, Andy? And he says, go away. We're running lines. Well, you wanted to see the gooey eye. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, get over here. I'm so freaked out by things going into eyes. I just... Oh, I can't even. I'm freaked out by that. Just go, 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 go. And Toby says, all right, well, it's getting gooier, so we'll just do it later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Andy is talking about practicing for this, this safety video. 
and he says he got a movie. It's for HRPDC chemical handling protocols. It's going to be seen by tons of workers in the industrial chemical community, one of whom could have a cousin whose brother's Brad Pitt. And boom, next thing you know, I'm in Moneyballs 2. And then he would promptly be cut from Moneyballs 2 because he called it Moneyballs 2. <laughs> That's not what, no. <laughs> not it. Kevin bought a plane off of Craigslist. So perhaps when Nelly in the cold open said that Kevin is skilled, maybe it was that plane. And Dwight is suspicious of this. So it's brought to light that he did in fact buy a plane off Craigslist. And so he calls for a refold so that it is Kevin's actual plane. And he hands Kevin a piece of paper and Kevin says, this is flatter. <laughs> yes. Yes. You fold it into an airplane. This is a piece of paper. This is not a paper airplane. You fold it into a plane. But he <laughs> does not know. He cannot. He cannot fold a paper airplane. I can't really fold a paper airplane, but I can guess. He has gone through an entire room of paper <laughs> and basically they're all just folded in like half. But he cannot choose his paper airplane because he, quote, loves them all equally, even though they're all garbage. So Nellie makes him pick one and he finally does and throws it. And it's, I mean, it just barely leaves his hand. And <laughs> as it leaves his hand, Nellie says, Angela advances. <laughs> like he, she doesn't even need to see where it goes because it's, again, just a piece of paper. Yeah, and he says, I'm not giving up. I'm going to keep making planes until one of them flies, like Wilbur and Orville Redenbacher. <laughs> not those people's names. <laughs> no. Uh, maybe a popcorn plane. <laughs> we see later he is going through another ream of paper, making attempts, and he's keeping notes this time. He's being very methodical in his process. He says the Mark 47 is ready for launch, and he tries to throw it, and it doesn't even leave his hand. Because he has used glue to make his plane. You don't use glue to make a paper airplane. Whatever. He says in his notes, Cheater. less paste. Got it. On to Mark 48. <laughs> and then, of course, the journal that he's writing in gets stuck to his hand because <laughs> right. he's covered in paste. Too much paste. Clark is listening in on Jim and Pam's awkward, awful dispute. When Jim says, okay, to speak my truth, that was sarcastic. I think that's unfair. And then Pam says a thing about the kids. And Jim says, I guess I will swallow my truth. And Clark says, are you guys high? Because if so, to speak my truth, I would appreciate the sacrifice of including me in some hits off of your kind buds. <laughs> Pam says, we're not high. <laughs> we're, we're not high. Andy, as he's leaving for his video job, goes up to Oscar and says, hey, Oscar, I already figured it out. If I have to get emotional in the film... I'm just going to think about you getting dumped by the senator. Oscar's offended. He says, why would you use your own life? Aaron just dumped you. And he says, little raw. Not cool, Oscar. <laughs> Oscar says, but you just, not cool. <laughs> not cool. Creed, upon seeing that Dwight has won the, the $2,000, he says, ah, oh, two grand, huh? I know a guy who could turn that into $800. And it's me. <laughs> yes, I am also skilled at spending money. Yes. I can, I can also Trust do that. me with your $2,000. <laughs> Carla Fern has a few funny moments in this episode. Uh, when they first get to the gig, she points to a chair. She says, I made them get you a chair. All my clients sit. Like, she's so proud of the fact that she gets her clients a chair. Okay. <laughs> Later, when Andy complains to her about having to stick his eyes in the wash, eye wash machine, she says, Andy... She's got him by the cheeks. 
Andy, if you don't stick your eyes in that machine, I'm going to call every production in northeastern Pennsylvania. You won't even make an appearance on a security camera, <laughs> which is fantastic. And that's when he starts crying. And then lastly, after Andy just is completely screeching while getting his eyes washed, she slaps the cameraman on his arm and goes, hey, kid can act. And like she's impressed <laughs> with him. Like, yikes. For doing the bare minimum. Yeah, uh, I, I, I don't trust her instinct. No. <laughs> we get to see a rather competitive side of Erin. Now, she says it's because of her time in the orphanage. She says growing up in an orphanage, you have to fight other kids for everything. Snacks, pillows, parents. <laughs> and she says that she's kind of worried about Pete seeing that side of her. And that she once ripped greedy Susan's pigtail right off of her head. Just for a handful of Crispix. Uh, yikes. So Erin <laughs> apparently has this violent streak that we have not seen and we, we see several threats sort of throughout the episode. She says that Clark is a dead man. She calls him a pig, a piggy, and like oinks at him. <laughs> and it's just completely unnecessary. And even a- she's, she's taunting even after she wins certain rounds of the, of the playing contest. And it's just, <laughs> she knows that she's being inappropriate, but she can't seem to stop herself. Right. She, she knows she's way past the line. She even curses a couple times. Damn it. That's very not Aaron. That's not Aaron. Dwight is talking about the advantages of Esther over Angela. He says she's younger than Angela, sturdier, more comfortable with the scent of a manured field. And let's be honest, when it came to manured fields, Angela was at best indifferent. (laughs) At at best. (laughs) At best. That's what I think is about as best as you can hope for. I, I would think so. Nellie kind of forgot to tell everyone that there was a cash prize for winning the paper airplane contest. (laughs) And maybe people would have taken this more seriously had they known that you could win $2,000. Angela's kind of mad about it, which makes sense given her situation. She says, Nellie, you didn't tell us we could win money. Nellie says, oh, yes, I did. I told you all. It was, uh, yeah, that's an awful lot of money for me to forget. (laughs) Stanley says, not one of us remembers you saying anything about $2,000. And then it cuts away to a Nellie talking head. She goes, I forgot. I completely forgot. But at least now that large piece of cardboard that man was carrying around makes sense. <laughs> Moving on to deleted scenes. We've got a little bit more for this episode. Uh, the first one, Daryl is driving Andy to the video shoot and Andy is spraying hairspray in the middle of the car. Daryl says, hey, why couldn't you do that before? And he says, I, I just want to look good when I get there. Andy then asks Daryl, if on set, they ask you to, or they interview you for the behind the scenes video. Talk about how much we laughed on set. Okay. And then he says, man, my hands are so sweaty, probably because of how hot it is. Daryl says, it's 50 degrees outside. And he says, well, when my hands sweat, I squeeze ice cubes to make them sweat less. And that's probably not what's happening. You're probably just covering your sweat up with water. Uh, (laughs) He says, hey, when we get there, can you go on an ice run? Joel says, you know, I'm missing work for this, right? <laughs> and Andy just says, it's day two of a paper airplane contest. I think we're all right. <laughs> Daryl says, okay, fair point. You, you do have me there. And he is the manager who is also, again, not concerned about missing work. So. Not at all. Toby's depth perception is all off with his <laughs> eye patch. He's uh, getting water from the water cooler and completely misses his cup. And when he realizes what he's done, he drinks from the cup with nothing in it, as to not embarrass himself, but Nellie totally sees. Just <laughs> looks at the camera. Yeah, she just stares like, look at, look at this. Look at this guy. <laughs> Daryl is trying to pitch athlete, but actors. <laughs> it's a Garla Fern. <laughs> he calls it 
act lead. <laughs> and he says that, that they've, we've already trademarked the name. Carla just says, terrible idea. And Daryl's like, but wait, 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 hold on. You didn't hear me. The name is act lead. Like, that's genius. <laughs> you have to this. And then Andy walks in and he's dressed in his lab assistant outfit and heavy stage makeup. And the director, whoever it is, comes up and says, hey, what's on your face? And Andy uses his uh, awful British accent, says, a little of the old grease paint. The director says, you, you need to take it all off. Take it all off. And he says, oh, I have a few different colors. Are any of these colors better? And the director says, no, let's, let's go with no makeup, okay? And he says, okay, well, is there a makeup remover store nearby? <laughs> he says, no, just use soap and water. Like, come on, Andy, be a person. <laughs> <laughs> and we also know that he bought his makeup way too dark because the color he has on is called Trinidad, but he yeah. also has Brazilian matador and man of Athens, <laughs> none of which sound appropriate for his skin color. No. Everyone's being mean to Toby when he beats Meredith in the contest. She calls him a cyclops. And Nellie says to Toby, Toby, really? An achievement? But Toby's depth perception is still all off. So when he goes to high five Clark, he sort of just slaps him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> then Aaron speaks up and says, guys, quit, quit palling around. Just throw the freaking airplane. Throw the airplane. Contest. It's a contest. Pete's trying to calm her down. And Pete then has a talking head. He says, oh. Aaron's not competitive. She's just, and we hear from off-screen uh, Aaron saying, let's get this cotton-picking show on the road, mother beep. <laughs> and Pete just sort of stares for a second, and then he tries to play it off with, oh, calm down, Phyllis. He just kind of nervously <laughs> chuckles at the camera. Well, it's not my girlfriend. <laughs> it's a Clark talking head. He says, I'm actually really good at this motion, and he mimics throwing an airplane. This when I was 10, I spent the summer with my uncle in England, and he would take me to the pub and let me throw darts. If I got a bullseye, he'd give me a sip of beer. So I got really good at darts. But that's the summer I kind of stopped growing. <laughs> I also like at the beginning of that deleted scene, Nellie is announcing Clark versus Aaron, and she says, make it so. And she goes, Patrick Stewart, family friend. <laughs> I, I highly <laughs> doubt that. <laughs> well, who was it she slept with or claimed to have slept with? Like one of the... Like the brother of Hugh Grant or something like that? Yeah. I think that's right. I think so. Next deleted scene, Nellie says, and then there were two people interested in this contest. They're clearly <laughs> sick of it. Angela and Dwight, please fold your planes. And Esther comes up behind Dwight folding his plane and says, Dwight, you are so good at this. You're going to need to dig us a bigger money hole. Dwight's just like, uh-huh. Yeah, well, a lot of it has to do with luck. And she goes, oh, well, you know, I'm the really lucky one here because I found you. Dwight's response is just, okay, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so he doesn't seem all that enthused by her, at least in this deleted scene. And Angela just rolls her eyes. And then he has a talking head. Says, I don't need this win. I've got a lucrative job, an enormous farm, and this building. Angela has nothing but a child who, while adorable, won't bring in revenue for another five or six years. What is he planning on Philip doing <laughs> when he's yeah. six years old? Yeah, no kidding. I also meant to say that when Esther surprised Dwight in the episode by showing up early, he does not seem very excited. And that's kind of mirrored here in this deleted scene where he's just like, okay, like, please stop talking. Yeah, I kind of meant to mention that too. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, we both dropped the ball there because we were eager to talk about Jim and Pam, I think. Yeah, we wanted to get to the 
juicy stuff. Yeah, so she we can talk about it real quick. So she shows up and she like passionately kisses Dwight in front of everyone. And it's not like she's trying to show off or anything, but she's just into Dwight, I guess. And Angela's put off by it. And even Dwight seems a little uncomfortable. Do you think it's uncomfortable with the public part of it or the uncomfortable with being in front of Angela specifically? Or is he just uncomfortable with this from Esther in general? Unless things have changed. I would imagine that it's because he's in front of Angela mm-hmm. because they looked awfully co- cozy on the tractor when they were driving down the street, just the two of them. Yeah. But I think reintroducing Angela into the picture. Oh, and now her current situation where he just feels so much for her and obviously protection for her that he's just, I don't know. Esther is not the first thing on his mind right now. Yeah. I think he's trying to be considerate of Angela's feelings and mm-hmm. kissing his new girlfriend in front of his ex-girlfriend and person who he basically kind of proposed to in just a a couple episodes ago uh he's definitely trying to be sensitive which is good because dwight's not always the most sensitive person next to the scene uh finally kevin has made a great paper airplane he's so proud he goes to throw it it goes so far and then we see that toby is crossing again and uh kevin's very pointy airplane hits toby inside of his ear and he collapses and uh, grabs his ear. So now he's <laughs> deaf, too. Yeah, I wanted to point out the the airplanes hitting Toby must have been CGI. Because in this deleted scene, we actually don't see the paper plane make impact with him. So <laughs> I, I think it was it, it was just like we hear the smack and we see Toby reach for his ear. But the plane is actually not there. So interesting to... And it makes sense. You wouldn't actually throw a paper airplane at a person's eye. But Right. <laughs> anyways, next... Andy walks into the office after his job. He's got one eye patched himself. He says, and the Oscar for best performance in a dramatic safety video goes to Sir Marlon Brandrew Bernard. Daryl's the only one to clap. Clark says, hey, uh, I have six messages for you from David Wallace. And Andy just goes, oh, fudge bubble. And then he says, and one from Carla Fern. And Andy's excited about that one. He says, oh, okay, I'll take that one. And goes into his office and closes the door behind him. And Clark's just left there with the six messages from David Wallace. And he says, you, you, you don't want these? Like, okay, fine. More evidence. Mm-hmm. And the last one, Daryl Talking Head. He says, if you asked me six months ago, if I thought that Andy Bernard could make it as an actor, I'd have said no way. But now I think that anyone can do it. <laughs> Even Andy. <laughs> And then during this talking head, Toby, who has a patch over his right eye, and Andy, who has a patch over his right eye, collide right shoulders because neither one of them can see where they're going. But Toby can't hear Andy reprimand him because his ear is also injured. So uh, they both had a rough day. Well, that's it. We don't have a discussion topic for that second episode just because we we talked a lot anyways. (laughs) There, There was a heavy episode, but a welcome episode because we finally have some closure and some relief in regards to Jim and Pam. So before we get to our official goodbyes, we have just a couple of voicemail things to address. Very first, we have one from Lane, who called back to let us know that it was indeed Lane and not Vane, like it sounded like on the recording. So thanks again for calling Lane and clarifying that for us. Uh, We're glad we were able to get that right, and we're glad we guessed correctly too. And then our voicemail that we're going to play is from Ashley from California. So let's listen to Ashley. Hello, this is Ashley from Hidden Hills, California, and I'm calling today to ask you guys a question. I was wondering if you watch The Office, like if you've watched it multiple times before, or is this your first time watching The Office? Okay, thank you for calling, Ashley. And this is a fair question because I don't know if we always make it very clear. 
we obviously try not to spoil anything about future episodes. So uh, just to put it out there again, we have seen it many times. Uh, Katie, would you like to take a guess how many times you've seen The Office all the way through? Oh, it's okay. All the way through, maybe four, but that might be conservative. Four mm-hmm. to five. But there are several episodes I've seen incongruently that I've seen a lot right. more than that. Eh, four all the way through is not unlikely. You? Right. For me, most of the time, if I'm watching like standalone episodes, it's because I'm around other people who are watching The Office and they're not necessarily part of my watch through. So there are same for me, some episodes that I've just seen many, many, many times. And I know our view counts are probably lower than some people, maybe even lower than some of our listeners. Uh, But for me, I'd guess maybe five to six times total where I intentionally sat from the beginning to the end and watched through the whole show. So, I mean, I I just have a really good memory a lot of the time for detail, which helps with this podcast and remembering (laughs) those links back to past episodes. So five to six times. I know some people have watched it like 20 times. I know some people claim to have watched it 50 to 100 times, which is crazy, Ooh. which is awesome. It's a great show. Maybe I'll reach that number someday. <laughs> uh, but just five to six times for me for now. So, yeah. Thanks for calling, Ashley. That's a good question. And with that, that's the end of the official 105th episode of An American Workplace. Contact for the show, facebook.com slash workplace pod and at workplace pod on Twitter. Please consider going over to Apple Podcasts, dropping a rating and review. Subscribe. That'll help us get some notoriety on the Apple Podcasts app. If you have any feedback or ideas or just want to say hi, you can always email us, workplacepod at gmail.com. And if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, to be heard on the show like Ashley was today, dial 93-PRETS-DAY. That is 937-738-9329. And again, you can call with questions, to say hi, to say nice things. We'll accept all of those things <laughs> and we'll play you on the show. <laughs> Just remember to leave your name, try and keep it under a minute long, be specific so that it, nothing drags on too long and we can respond to you pretty easily on the show. You can find me on Twitter at ktlady623 or at facebook.com slash katie.white. And the best place for me is at chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. And there's also facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And my other podcast is Cinescope, which you can find where podcasts can be found and at thecinescopepodcast.com. Show notes and all contact information for this show can be found at workplacepodcast.com. If you want a shout out and more of an American workplace each week, including access to our discussion outline and notes, a logo sticker and bonus episodes, check out our Patreon page and pick the support level you think is worth it to you at patreon.com slash workplace pod. And that is all for this week. Thank you for joining us to watch one of our favorite shows, The Office, here on episode 105 of An American Workplace. Make sure to join us in episode 106 for our discussion on the next episode of season nine, Living the Dream. Bye. Bye. Only three more.